Transmitting from the lovely little city of Taylor, Texas, you are listening to Plow and Hose, a show dedicated to the joys and challenges of organic backyard gardening in Central Texas. I am your host, Julie Rydell. Welcome to the show. Hey friends, thank you for joining me today. Here we are, we're finishing up the last full week of January and it's really ending on a bit of a cool and dreary note here in Taylor, here in Central Texas, but I can't help be excited as we leave January behind and move into February. We're just getting closer and closer to springtime, and despite the gloom, this is a great time of year for all of us who enjoy vegetable gardening, and I don't know, I think it's kind of weird. It doesn't look or feel like a really amazing time for growing things, but honestly, it is. And that's because we can still plant so many of the cool season crops. Now until the end of February, it's the perfect time to plant all of these things out in the veggie beds. We can plant artichoke and asparagus crowns. We can plant all the Asian greens beets. We can put out broccoli and cabbage transplants. We can sow carrot seeds. We can plant collards and chard and cauliflower and kale and kohlrabi, leeks, lettuce, mustard greens, onions, English peas. We can start potatoes in February. It's almost time to do that radishes, spinach, and turnips. So that's like what, like 20, 21 things that we can plant now. And most of these we can plant straight from seed. Also, um, a lot of these you should still be able to find as transplants too. Now, artichoke and asparagus crowns are a little more difficult to find in stores. And honestly, I don't think I've ever seen artichoke crowns for sale in a store. Um, I know I've seen asparagus sold at um, some chain stores, but they're kind of also hard to find locally. Um, If you're interested in growing artichokes or asparagus, um, I did record um, some shows, some episodes that I spent some time talking about both of those. So um, if you're interested in learning more about um, how to plant them and what varieties to look for, um, go out to wherever you um, get your podcasts and just look for the older shows that I have. They're, um, they're going to be a year old and also recorded about in January and February timeframe. So go look for those. It's also a really, really good time for tucking in one last round of cool season veggies. But late January, early February is also a wonderful time because we can start warm season favorites like tomatoes and peppers inside. If you haven't started these seeds yet, 
that's fine. There is plenty of time. But don't put it off if your goal is to plant these as early as possible. The absolute earliest time to plant would be right after the last average freeze, which for us here in Taylor and Central Texas, Austin area, that is right around March 5th. So it's coming up. That's going to give us about a month to grow out some seedlings. Peppers and tomatoes are big plants, and they do best when they are planted early and are given a chance to develop a strong root system before it gets too warm and they start setting flowers and fruit. Last year, I tried a couple new tomato varieties. Um, Really only one stood out to me. And I made sure to save some seeds from my favorite tomato plants last year. And that was a Russian heirloom variety called Black Seaman. It was a good little plant, but those tomatoes had the best flavor. I really enjoyed the tomatoes from Black Seaman. They have, uh, the fruits are like a deep, dark mahogany kind of color, Um, and they, they do kind of have a shoulder, like a darker, deeper color, um, shoulder across the top of the fruit. I can't say that they're really black, more like red, brown, red, black, maybe you could call them chocolate brown. Um, they're definitely not that clear tomato red. They're darker. They are medium sized fruits and they taste great. Plus they look cool. Um, at last year, this time I was a little worried about how well a Russian variety would do here in central Texas. I mean, you just don't think that there would be comparable climates, but honestly, I thought that they did just fine. I was happy with my harvest. Another favorite, um, that I've grown, um, in previous years has been yellow brandy wine. Um, that's one that I will likely grow again. I'm just not going to grow it this year because I wanted to try some other ones. And after doing a little research, I decided to try Kellogg's breakfast and German pink tomatoes this year. Kellogg's breakfast is a large carrot, orange, bright orange, beefsteak tomato. It's an indeterminate or a vining type tomato. It's one that's going to grow up to 10 feet long. And according to the description, it's going to produce well throughout the growing season. Kellogg's breakfast is also supposed to be less acidic and more on the sweet side. Since it's a beefsteak variety, it's a large, meaty slicing tomato, and those are best enjoyed fresh. Beefsteak tomatoes are big. They are big tomatoes. They can get up to like six inches wide and weigh up to a pound. Just one tomato up to a pound. That's crazy. They are also kind of unusually shaped. They are sort of ribbed. They aren't round, and they're not uniform like what we're used to seeing in the grocery store. 
So another factor for me selecting this tomato was its color because bright orange is probably my all-time lifelong favorite color. So I definitely wanted to try Kellogg's Breakfast this year. And plus it has like a weird funky name. So I was totally sold on trying it this year. Now, supposedly it's called Kellogg's Breakfast because of its bright orange juicy color that is reminiscent of orange juice. And because it reminded the guy that, I guess, got to name it, it reminded him of breakfast, he decided to call it Kellogg's Breakfast. Um, that, that was the guy's last name, Kellogg. No relation to the cereal company. Um, just a coincidence. So that's how supposedly it got its name. The guy's last name plus breakfast. So Kellogg's Breakfast. I also decided to try German pink tomatoes. I really do not remember why I decided to order these. Um, you know, I usually have a specific reason, but, you know, I can't really recall um, what that was right now. But German pinks are an all, you know, a, a, an all-time favorite. Um, I've just never grown them before. They're supposed to be nice, heavy tomatoes. And they're just, um, described as being sweet um, and also full of flavor. These are a German variety, as you can probably guess. Um, they were originally brought to the U.S. Um, in the 1880s, brought over from Bavaria, which is in the southeastern part of Germany. Now, both German pink and Kellogg's breakfast tomatoes are described as being thin-skinned, and that probably had... Um, you know, probably influenced me to uh, try these too. Um, you know, I've also been des described on occasion as being thin-skinned, kind of a sensitive person. Uh, so I don't know, maybe that was a subconscious reason why I chose these two to try this year. I can relate. German pink is a smaller plant, smaller than Kellogg's breakfast. It's also an indeterminate vining type of tomato, but it doesn't get as long. It only gets to about six feet long, but it's supposed to be very productive and it's considered a high yield tomato. Plus it's a good all around multi-purpose tomato. It's good fresh, it's good cooked, you can can it. It's good juiced and even you can even freeze them. They aren't pink though. Um, they're also not red. Um, they're somewhere in between kind of more like a dark rose color. Kellogg's breakfast is a fairly new variety. I mean, compared to German pink, there's like 90 years, um, between them when they were introduced to the United States. Kellogg's Breakfast was released in 1993 through the Seed Savers Exchange, which is a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to preserving and promoting American seeds. They collect and test and save seeds 
from all over America, and their mission is to protect the diversity of heritage and heirloom seeds. According to their website, the Seed Savers Exchange was founded in 1975 by Diane Ott Wheely and Kent Wheely. They were inspired to start this organization because Diane's grandparents had been saving two specific seeds over the generations since their family, uh, their ancestors immigrated to the U.S. from Germany. When they came over the Atlantic Ocean, they brought with them this gorgeous purple morning glory. And that one is now called Grandpa Ott. And they also brought over their beloved pink tomato seeds. So that was the German pink. Now, even though I personally appreciate having heirloom plants and the internet has just made it so easy to acquire them now, I do enjoy learning about heirlooms and kind of their background history, what's their backstory. But I have to admit that sometimes I don't, uh, that I do, I get so engrossed and excited about reading about plants that I don't really spend a lot of time learning about seed providers or seed companies. But Seed Savers Exchange is a really interesting producer. And it takes extremely passionate people to do what they are doing. Um, Basically, they have a seed bank. And they are connecting with people not not only all over, um, like test plots, all over the United States. But they are also working with people all over the world to network and preserve seeds. Now, this is, uh, this is, this kind of work is like, way more than a weird hobby. It's growing and testing and saving heirloom and other open pollinated seeds. And it's very, very important to our food system here in the United States. It's important for biosecurity. Um, Most of our produce farms here in the U.S. grow monocultures, meaning they only grow certain varieties on their industrial-style farms. Oftentimes, they grow acres and acres and acres of the exact same crop variety. Now, there are advantages to doing this. The advantages are specifically for the large commercial farms. It makes them easier for them to grow one thing. They can anticipate yields and planting times, and they are able to plan um, with some regularity with what they need and how to harvest. Now, these crops usually hold up really well to mechanical harvesting and also shipping these crops, um, these varieties are tougher. Um, and that's why these, um, large scale operations select them. Um, but they select them what's 
um, best for the process, not necessarily what tastes best. Monocultures um, and monoculture-based industrial farming is kind of risky business. The greatest problem with growing just a single variety of a crop on a large scale is that it increases the possibility of losing your entire crop to disease or insect outbreaks, infestations. And that's because there is very little genetic diversity. When you only plant one variety of something and it, there, it becomes a real risk of losing everything to a pathogen like a fungus or to insects. And, you know, for example, you know, the, the Irish potato famine that happened in the 1800s, that is probably the best known example of what can happen when you only grow one crop. So after years and years of only growing the exact same type of potato, potato blight, which is a type of mold, infected the potato fields all across Ireland and just completely devastated everything related to those potato crops. I mean, it ruined the economy. It killed, you know, about a million people who died from starvation and other hunger-related diseases. So that's really on the big extreme end. But, you know, even more recently, something similar happened in the 1950s with bananas. It was a different pathogen, a different situation, but it wiped out the plantations that grew monocultures of the most um, important banana variety then called Gros Michel bananas. After all the Gros Michel bananas had died, the growers had to find a replacement variety, you know, to keep bananas bananas are popular so they had to find a replacement banana variety but they didn't really learn from this problem of having a monoculture because they ended up doing the exact same thing they just replaced it with one other variety, one single variety, and create another monoculture. Um, and that's why, like, all of the bananas at the grocery store, they're all that classic yellow banana. Um, and this modern variety is called Cavendish. And the deal with Cavendish is that it doesn't make seeds, and you can only propagate it through cuttings. And cuttings are genetically identical to the parent plants. Again, very low genetic diversity with these banana plantations, the Cavendish bananas. They, because they're all alike, they can't cross-pollinate and they can't um, develop any sort of resistance to diseases or pests. So 
you know, they're kind of flirting with disaster, and I know that it is a concern. Um, I've heard news stories about it. But really, because of the situation that they set up again on these banana plantations, all it will take is a new strain of some pathogen to come through and devastate those plantations and wipe out all of the Cavendish bananas. And then we'll have to start all over with a new banana variety. But, you know, monoculture farming just is not going to stop. It's not a great idea, but the short-term benefits for large-scale farming, um, they're, they're just too good. Um, and, and they do provide food for our country and usually at really good prices, um, you know, good value anyway. So monoculture farming is not going to come to a, a halt. Monocultures are easier to manage and, um, you know, the, the crops that they, they select are, are pretty, um, high yield and profitable for them. So it ends up being worth the gamble to offset some of the risk though. Um, conventional and commercial farms rely heavily on agricultural chemicals to keep diseases and pests under control and as I'm sure you know um, reliance on these agricultural chemicals causes lots of other issues that are not so great for the planet but it is what it is most Americans just don't garden at home at all. And, you know, those of us who do, we don't garden on the scale that they did 50, 60, 70 years ago. There aren't near as many local farms either. So what this has um, created is um, a situation where there isn't nearly the demand for a huge variety of seeds. And you can see that when you check out the seed selection at garden centers, at chain stores. I mean, you basically get a few choices. You get like two kinds of corn, three types of beans. You might get four or five different types of tomatoes to choose from, and that's it. A couple of cardboard displays that come out in the springtime and then they stay up until summer. And that's all these big chain stores do. If you want more variety, you're going to have to put in a little more effort, like checking out independent nurseries and shopping online. Independent nurseries, um, they're really great for... Getting seeds that we know are going to do well in our area, um, they're, they're much more um, reliable uh, sources of seeds that are going to do well in our climate here in central Texas. 
Now, in the past, families and communities had to save seeds from season to season so they could grow all the food for themselves. They would save the seeds from the very best plants to use for next year. Not anymore. I mean, people aren't growing stuff like that. Um, We are highly dependent on the store for fresh, frozen, and canned produce. We don't maintain large backyard gardens like our our relatives used to. Instead, um, somehow it evolved. We evolved um, instead to grow and maintain lawns and turf grass. And to me, I think that is just one of the most weird and bizarre things to grow. And it's very expensive and I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know why people spend weekends just mowing and weed eating and all the nutrient oh, feeding them, all of that stuff. It's crazy to me because you can't even eat the grass. I mean, technically, technically you can the grass is edible, but nobody does that. Um, anyway, lawns are just another example of an intentionally grown monoculture. Anyway, um, you know, between these, uh, societal changes and our modern agriculture practices, the demand for seed is low and this puts heritage and heirloom plants at risk for going extinct and being lost. If people don't plant them and save the seeds, we risk losing them forever. And not only do we lose the plants, you know, many of the rare seeds have history and cultural significance associated with them. Just like endangered species, um, once they were gone, they're gone. That's, That's it. And, you know, we lose biodiversity, but we also lose a little bit of history. Over uh, the years, modern practices have steadily expanded into the use of genetically modified crops. Genetic modification, it occurs naturally, and that is how we have acquired the variety that we do today. It's through pollination um, for all of time. It literally has been the birds and the bees, and also wind, uh, transferring pollen all over the place and slowly making new plants. This is called open pollination. Um, you know, little by little, um, the plants change somewhat because they have a slightly different DNA. Sometimes, um, you know, sometimes it, it produces really good new plants. Um, oftentimes, you just get the same plants or mediocre plants. Little by little, though, these plants are changing through open pollination. On the positive side, some become more 
resistant to diseases. Sometimes they're more drought or heat tolerant. And every year, if um, you know you save the seeds from your best plants, um, you will have a really great plant that you can count on. Somewhere along the way, um, humans also figured out that they can manipulate pollination and create hybrids. Hybrids have um, a, very, a desired trait. So um, the plant that you have is better than the individual parent plants. And, you know, the monks in monasteries, they were hand-pollinating um, plants to try to you know, cultivate different varieties um, and create um, better plants. Now, um, this is kind of where, like, this hybridization um, kind of gets a little controversial. People in companies who create hybrid varieties, you know, um, in our modern times, we spend a lot of time and money to create improved plants. Improved plants are great because they have the best characteristics of each parent plant. But hybrid plants are usually infertile. Um, they don't produce seeds or their seeds are just not um, reliable. They're not, they don't replicate in an expected way. So you may get an inferior plant if you get something to grow from the seed. So because people spend a lot of time and money on hybridization, um, you know, they want to protect their financial interests. Um, and in the United States, people and companies can apply for plant patents. Patents help protect the research and the intellectual property associated with new plants. A plant patent allows the patent owner to legally protect their new plants from being copied or sold or used um, by others. And I don't know, I think that's kind of weird. I mean, why, why would you want to do that? I mean, obviously they want to protect their financial interests and they also don't want their competition to make money off of their research, but they also want to sell the seeds so they can make a profit. And hybrid seeds have to be bought new every year. So this really isn't, um, you know, a, a big deal for us backyard gardeners. Um, one little packet of seeds doesn't cost a whole lot, but for folks who grow on a larger scale, our farmers, having to buy hybrid seed every year can be very expensive. And that eats into profits. And some years, you know, it may be okay. Other years when conditions aren't so good and there's not a great harvest for whatever reason, you know, maybe there was drought conditions or a flood or some other kind of thing, that expensive patented seed did not pay for itself. 
So there's a definite, distinct advantage of being able to harvest and save some of your seed every year to make your farming operation more profitable. There are also other controversies that come along with patented seed. Um, A lot of times they're modified genetically. Um, GMOs, genetically modified organisms, um, you know, modification happens naturally through open pollination. Uh, It happens every time a plant swaps genetic material. It's a really, really slow process to change um, the outcomes of of that pollination, um, but that, but that's how plants have evolved, and that's what's given us this diversity. It's the intentional genetic modification where humans come in, and instead of just like you know swapping pollen, they go in and they swap DNA in a laboratory, and that kind of starts getting people a little riled up. Um, Some folks are concerned about the potential long-term effects on the environment. Um, This is new technology, and it hasn't really necessarily been um, tested. We don't know all of the implications that this can cause. Other folks, um, they just don't like the idea of implanting outside or foreign DNA into their foods that they're going to eat. And there's also folks who just flat out think that companies should not profit off of plants. And especially, they don't think that they should create dependencies on corporations. Um, Like having to buy seed from only one company. So there um, there is some concern about global food production. A lot of people don't think that it's morally right for companies to control seeds through industrial monocultures and patents. And, you know, that's some food for thought. And it's a good question, you know. Why should a corporation be able to charge for something that Mother Nature provides for free? You are listening to Plow and Hose on KBSR Black Sparrow Radio. If you are enjoying my show, I hope you'll go over to www.blacksparrowmusicparlor.com and check out the station and learn all about the great shows and music all coming out of our little station broadcasting from Taylor, Texas. Be sure to head over to Spotify or Apple or any of those places where you get your shows and subscribe to the Plow and Hose podcast. If you like the flexibility of being able to play, pause, and rewind my show whenever you want, download some episodes, please, and be sure to leave a review. This is going to help others find the show, and downloading the Plan Host episodes helps provide me with statistics. All right, just one final segment on seed-saving companies uh, and seeds Some of these uh, seed companies specialize in saving seeds, not only for ensuring biodiversity of crops, but also for cultural reasons, because seed saving allows them not only to pass on 
wonderful varieties, but they also are passing down history as well as important food-related rituals and harvest-related traditions. If you love history and you love gardening and plants, uh, plants are just absolutely fascinating from a historic and cultural perspective because eating is a part, a key part of being a human. And I find it so enlightening to learn about different plants and how about different cuisines and where, where food and recipes, where they all came came from and how they came to exist. Of course, environment and climate influence regional cuisine, Um, you know, basically the types of crops that people are able to grow in the area they live, Um, but also um, the food that's accessible to them through foraging. And people have built up their culture and their identity all around food. And I think it's so interesting. Seeds are very portable and they were very easy for people to bring with them as they immigrated to America. They brought seeds from their homelands um, to try to grow here. Uh, It didn't always work out, but sometimes it did. And people saved the best seeds and passed them throughout their community, shared them, and they were able to, this whole seed saving process, share with the next generations. And we can look back on the origins of heirloom plants and just have a better appreciation um, of them. Some of them have pretty interesting stories, like, you know, the morning glories and the pink tomatoes that Grandpa Ott brought over from Bavaria, Germany. If he had not done that, you know, it would not have inspired his uh, great-granddaughter to start a seed-saving company. Seed, uh, nativeseeds.org is another nonprofit that's located in Tucson, Arizona. They also collect and sell and distribute heirloom and rare seeds. Their seed collection represents the cultural heritage of indigenous people. Um, more than 50 indigenous communities, as well as Spanish and Mormon immigrants to the Southwest. Their seed bank consists of seeds that are adapted to arid climates and the landscapes of the Southwest. They have a very special collection of rare seeds that are sacred and ceremonial plants, and those are only available to indigenous people So they have been working very hard to ensure culturally important seeds are accessible for future generations. And I think that is so cool and very special. And another, um, you know, while I was 
doing research for this show, I uh, came across another seed saving initiative. It's called the Heirloom Collard Project. And this nonprofit strives to preserve and reintroduce people to rare collard green varieties. And that is so incredibly specific. But it's important because collards are an incredibly important crop in the American South because they have always, always been an inexpensive but nutrient-rich vegetable for people. They are a staple for many Southern families, but they are especially significant to African-American history. And that's because collards and other greens sustained enslaved people. And they were one of the few crops that slaves were allowed to grow for themselves. Not only does the Heirloom Collard Project collect these rare varieties, they also collect the stories of the people who have been saving the seeds. They are documenting and recording the legacy of these collard seeds. And so in a way, this Heirloom Collard Project is like collard green genealogy because they're able to associate these collard varieties with specific regions and certain families. And some of these collard greens um, can be traced back more than 100 years. And that is just really amazing. Some of these greens that people have been saving are strikingly different from what we think of when we think of collard greens, because the ones at the grocery stores and most of the seeds that we can buy and the transplants that we buy, they are just typically flat leaf varieties. But thanks to seed saving initiatives, especially the heirloom collard project, there's just a, a huge variety of collards. Um, there are curly really roughly leafed ones. There are glazed varieties, which are shiny. There are variegated ones, ones that are variegated with white and green. Um, some look more blue. Some are purple. They grow, um, grow differently. Some are, are leafy, like we, like we think of when we think of collard greens. But there are actually some collards that form heads like cabbages, just like um, the other heirloom crops. Um, these tend to be more flavorful. Some are sweeter, some are spicier, and the same can be said about the stories associated with the heirloom collard project. So that might be something that you want to go look up if you think that sounds interesting. Okay, um, at the end of the show, here we are late January, and it's a fantastic time to plan and shop for seeds. Also, getting those tomatoes and peppers started really soon. 
So while you're out looking for seeds, I hope you'll take a little time to seek out special nonprofits like these Seed Exchange or Native Seeds, but also seek out smaller seed companies. Um, it's really important to support um, these initiatives to keep our um, heritage and heirloom plants um, within the, the collective, because if they go away, we don't get them back. So I hope that you will find something new while you're out shopping for seeds. Um, hope you'll try something new this year. And if you do, I don't know, maybe you'll be inspired to save the seeds from your best plants from this year's garden. Keep some for yourself, but also maybe offer some seeds to other people. All right. Thank you for joining me again this week, and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Production assistance provided by KBSR, Black Sparrow Radio. Original music created by Alex Cuervo. Discover more of his music at alexcuervo.tv. If you love plants and gardening in Central Texas, be sure to click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and never miss seasonal information on Plow and Hose. Plow and Hose is written and recorded at my home in Taylor, Texas. Thank you.